If you're new with us, we are beginning a new uh, four-week series for Advent on the Psalms. We've been working our way through Luke's Gospel. We're going to take four weeks looking at what some call the Royal Psalms, Psalms that speak about uh, the Davidic King David and about the promise that God made to David that one would sit on his throne forever, which of course points uh, to the Lord Jesus. So it's a great pleasure to welcome you in on this study as we look at Psalm 18, which is a, it's a big psalm. I know you guys have had a feast already this week, um, but we are about to have some good gospel calories uh, that, that'll do us well. So let's pray together as we, uh, as we prepare our hearts to, uh, to receive the word. Father, I think about the words of Amos. We said that there's a famine in the land, not of food or water, but of hearing the word of God. And we do not want to be those who are biblically malnourished, but rather those who are, are biblically strong. Uh, and so we pray that you would feed us today from your word and that um, we would put your word into practice. That we would not have uh, unmetabolized doctrine, but rather would um, put shoe leather to your word, be changed as a result of hearing it. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Popular phrase today is the phrase right on brand. Sometimes people use it seriously, sometimes humorously as they speak about a company or a person's image. And so you might hear something like the, the use of red and yellow is very on brand for McDonald's. Or friendly, efficient service is right on brand for Chick-fil-A. Or a Canadian who loves hockey, right on brand. A soccer match ending in a 0-0 tie, very on brand for soccer. Or I left with a small duffel bag but came home with a, a big suitcase, very on brand for me when I travel. What David says here about the Lord is right on brand for the God of the Bible. He just wins victories. He wins battle after battle. This is David's song of victory that he sings with gratitude. And it reminds us how the God of the Bible has a history of winning battles for his people. We read of an early one in the book of Exodus as God raises up Moses to let all the people out of bondage uh, in Egypt. And as he gets them to the Red Sea, he parts the Red Sea, and Moses and the entourage uh, go through the Red Sea, singing, you can't touch this, by MC Hammer, and come out on the other side. They didn't do that part. They come out on the other side, and they did sing a song, and they sang, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. You read battle after battle in the book of Joshua as the people take land. You get to Judges, and you read a wonderful story. One of my favorites is the story of Gideon, a little guy. He gets his army down to just 300 people. He's going up against the trained Midianites, and he keeps asking the Lord for a sign that he will be victorious, and the Lord keeps giving him these, these signs. He finally gets uh, at the very end of the story, and he tells Gideon to go down to the enemy camp and listen. And he goes down, and he hears a guy who's having a dream, and he tells his friend, he says, I have a dream, and I've dreamed that a cake of barley bread has just rolled down the hill and destroyed us. I dreamed that a biscuit done killed all of us. And the guy says, well, that's none other than Gideon. You know, he's not a knight in shining armor, he's a, he's a biscuit. And he goes down and he tells his friends, we're going to take him. They're like, how do you know? And this guy had a dream. He dreamed about me. And uh, they were like, how are we going to take him? And he says, we're just going to take the band. And they go and blow trumpets. And the Lord gives them victory. And Israel experiences 40 years of peace. Or we read about Elijah at Mount Carmel against 450 prophets and God sends fire from heaven, proving that he alone is God. Or when Elisha in 2 Kings 6 takes his servant with him and all his servant sees is an army of Syrians and Elisha assures him saying, no, there are more of us than them. And the servant's confused because he only sees the enemy. And Elisha prays, open up his eyes, Lord. And he opens his eyes and he sees horses and chariots all around. 
and God gives them victory. And this all climaxes in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who won the victory through his death and resurrection, and who has promised to come again to put his enemies under his feet once and for all. It is really right on brand for God to win battles. And here in this chapter, David is pausing to reflect upon the many victories that God has given him uh, at this point. This song in Psalm 18 is almost verbatim of 2 Samuel 22. And if you go back and you read 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll see some of the, the victories, some of the battles that took place in David's life. And now he's pausing to give God thanks for bringing him, bringing him through. And this is also a good discipline for us at various points in our life to pause and to thank God for bringing us through battle after battle. David has faced Saul. He tried to kill him multiple times. His own son tries to take his life. He faced the enemy nations like the Philistines and giants like Goliath. And now David pauses to write this psalm and thank God for his grace for bringing him victory. This is one of the longest psalms in the Psalter. Uh, there's another one that we'll have in our series. Walter will be preaching Psalm 89, and so we, we want to build up your endurance uh, uh, this, this holiday season. And this is a striking psalm because of its language as well, not just because of its length. This is a, a psalm that uh, it, it has no real, it, it doesn't have the problems that Psalms 3 to 17 have, which have a lot to do with conflict and and warfare, now it's kind of a, a time of peace, it's a time of happiness, because David is writing it in a time in which his kingdom was established. And he's dealt with Saul once and for all, and he gives God thanks. But a lot of the language speaks to the person and work, I believe, of Jesus, in many places better than David, as we'll see, as this psalm is pointing us ahead to our Messiah. In fact, Paul, in Romans 15, quotes verse 49 of this psalm, to talk about how it was always God's plan to have the nations receive the light of the gospel and experience salvation. And so this psalm is doing a number of things for us. We'll look at it in three parts this morning. First of all, David's refuge. Secondly, David's rescuer. And thirdly, David's rejoicing. First of all, his refuge. Now we begin in verse one, after the superscription that gives us the context of this psalm, David includes in verse one what is not actually found in 2 Samuel 22. It's just this one beautiful little sentence, I love you, O Lord, my strength. So now if you get lost in any of my meanderings through this big psalm, just, just go back to verse one. All of these verses really are, are I think, intended to uh, cultivate in us renewed affections for the Lord. He, the psalm will tell us why we love the Lord. And he says here, I love you, O Lord. The word love is not the usual word that is used to express human love to God. It's an unusual Hebrew word that is usually used of God's love for his people, found in places like Psalm 103. It's a word of deep emotion and deep passion. And David is expressing that to the Lord. And you notice the, the minus of his faith. O Lord, my strength. We, we have a my faith, don't we? He doesn't just say the Lord is the strength or the refuge or the fortress, which would be true, but he's my refuge, he's my strength, he's my fortress. J.C. Ryle reminds us the life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is the savior, it's quite another to say he is my savior. The devil can say the first, 
But only a true Christian can say the second. It's my strength. It's my salvation. The Lord is my shepherd. I've been waiting for weeks to, to use this illustration from Psalm 18 regarding our, our brother here. Remember uh, Jacob Collins Gamble who was tending to his, his dear wife who had suffered a, a brain aneurysm, as many of you remember. I think it was in 2019. And we had been praying for them and praying for them. And I remember one trip to the hospital just asking him, hey, how you doing? And he said, I'm just reciting Psalm 18 verse 1 over and over again. And I've never forgotten that. The Psalms are so dear to us in moments of turmoil, in moments of despair, in moments of suffering. And if you're in Christ this morning, you get to say, the Lord is my strength. I may not have any strength in and of myself, but I have the Lord who is my strength. Yahweh is my strength, and therefore I have enough strength, right? When he says Lord, you see what uh, commentators sometimes refer to small caps, where it's a, a big L-O-R-D, which is hearkening back to Exodus when Moses said, what is your name? And God tells him, you tell them that I am sent you. You tell them Yahweh sent you. The only God sent you. And that is who our strength is this morning. The all-sufficient God of history. Well, that would be a sermon in itself, but I've got 49 more to go here. Um, he then begins to talk about reasons why he loves God, almost like a, a husband that would just begin to list reasons why he loves his wife. He says, here are some reasons. He's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, my, the horn of my salvation, and my stronghold. You need a rock in the wilderness? For, to protect you from the sun. You get on one side of the rock and you can have some shade or you might need a rock to, to hide when you're in danger. And David says, the Lord is my rock. He's my security. He's my protection. As Pastor Tony Evans says, sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom so that you will discover that he is the rock at the bottom. <laughs> and amen to that. He's a shield. He protects us from all the fiery darts of the devil. As we read in uh, Ephesians 6, that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but the spiritual warfare that we now wage. He is my refuge, something that he reiterates in this psalm, and he's the horn of my salvation. This was a symbol of strength, like the horn of, a, of, a, of an animal. And David here is owing all of his success, and you'll see this all through the psalm, to the strength of his God, to the protection of his God. David would wage many battles, but ultimately the battle was the Lord's. And the Lord has furnished him here with a complete set of armor with all of this protection so that he could do battle, so that he could endure times of distress and times of danger. And it's important for us to remember that we only have refuge in our God. Don't settle for a false refuge. Don't go running to things or to people that cannot provide for you what only God can give you. Only God is a refuge, and there is no refuge outside of him. Now, we learn from David here, where our refuge is. And because he is, verse 3, we can cry out to him. And he says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. This is the secret to David's success. He's able to call upon his God. You see the effectiveness of prayer here. And it's then exemplified even greater in the greater David in the New Testament who would call upon his father in times of distress. And because we are in Jesus today, as believers, we can cry out with confidence knowing that our God hears us and that he intervenes for us. So if you are in a time of battle, in a time of distress, then 
take courage from this psalm. There is refuge, and David shows us where it is found. Secondly, we see David's rescuer. This occupies a bulk of the psalm, verses 4 to 30. And it's interesting as you just step back for a moment and you say, you know, David could have just said in verse 4, the Lord intervened and saved me many, many times. Chapter 19. But he doesn't do that because that's the purpose of poetry, to kindle afresh something of, of wonder, of awe. He wants us to see the, the brilliance of God's rescuing grace. And so he, he begins by noting his need for rescue. And he notes these, these words of, of great distress. These are not what you might call first world problems that David was experiencing. I, I didn't call upon the Lord because there was a butter shortage or due to the price of gas, though that was, it's been quite difficult lately. Uh, it's getting better, right? Somebody in Kentucky recently said gas was as high as moonshine uh, in Kentucky, and they didn't know which one to drink and which one to put in the car. <laughs> but um, now David, David's got something worse going on here. He, he is in the grip of death. And so he speaks about these moments of where the cords uh, of death had encompassed him. He, it was like a trap had been laid for him. And then he says that he was desperate like a, a drowning person. That's that phrase, the torrents of destruction assailed me. Uh, water in, in the Bible is often used to speak of chaos, of death, drowning. And, and what, a, what a terrifying picture that, that is. And then verse 5, death is, is likened to a hunter trying to almost like pull him down. His enemies almost killed him multiple times. And David then says in verse 9, what did I do? I called upon the Lord. And he heard, he heard me from his, his uh, temple. Wherever we're at, we can cry out to the God of heaven. And he hears us in times of distress. And you may be wrapped up in some really terrible circumstances today. Take courage from this psalm. Take instruction from this psalm. And call out to the Lord in your distress. We're all going to have distress. <laughs> We're going to have moments where we hit the bottom. And who are you going to call in those times? Not Ghostbusters. No, you call out to the Lord who hears us in our distress. He hears us when we're in the belly of a fish. This is the language of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And that's hitting bottom when you're in the belly of a fish. And he says, that's what I did. I called out to the Lord. Well, David then begins to speak something of the powerful nature of God's rescue in verses 7 to 5. And this section is bracketed by the word foundations. You see that in verse 7 and verse 15. So this is one, one unit that's speaking about sort of how God shakes the earth. He shakes the foundations when he comes to intervene on behalf of his anointed, on behalf of, of his people. Something similar happened at the crucifixion, right? We read in Matthew 27, 51 that the earth quaked at the crucifixion. And here David uses poetic and, and vivid imagery to speak about how God rides in to intervene. He speaks in verse eight saying, Spoke, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. Some have likened this to a, a dragon. This is a, a picture of divine wrath being breathed out on David's enemies. And then he adds that God came down. Notice verse 9. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. And notice how God rides in 
He rides in on a cloud chariot accompanied by cherubim. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. And then in verses 11 to 14, he begins to speak about how God comes in like a thunderstorm. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick darkness, dark with water, out of the brightness before him. Hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Language is very reminiscent to the Exodus. He sent out his arrows like lightning bolts, scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. Again, language of the Exodus. And the foundations of the world were laid bare. He is saying the Lord is a warrior. And this is how our God rides in. This is the God who parts seas. This is the God who intervenes in supernatural and stunning ways. And this should encourage us. We don't have a puny God. We have a majestic God. Now, when you look at the history of David, you may go looking for incidents when this is said to have happened, and what you find is that's not what is said to have happened. But that's kind of the purpose of poetry. David is saying that whether I was taking refuge in the cave of Adullam or whether I was trying to slip away from Saul, God was at work in supernatural ways, maintaining his promises. It may not have looked sensational how I was rescued in all of these predicaments, but it was supernatural. Even though God's glory was veiled in those moments, He was the one that was protecting me. And we know that God has a history of coming down, don't we? Giving aid to His people. He's come down to us. That's the message of Christmas. God coming down in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And we await the day in which, God, uh, in which Christ will come again in, very, in a very stunning way. And he will ride in, as we read about in the New Testament, on a cloud. And we await that day. This past week I was at the dentist and one of the ladies who was taking care of me said, uh, now what is the name of the church you pastor? And I said, uh, Amago Day. And she said, another day? And I was like, yeah, that's it. It's another day. Uh, that's what we're looking for at Amago Day. We're looking for another day in which Jesus comes on his cloud chariot and he comes and reverses the curse and makes all things new. It's a powerful rescue that David talks about. But there's more. He then speaks of this, the personal nature of God's rescue. We read verses 16 to 19 previously. You notice the, the, the personal pronouns and how it was God who was the subject, who's doing all the action. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of the waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of calamity. The Lord was my support. So many great lines in this psalm. The Lord is our support today. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That's just beautiful, beautiful language that David uses. Interestingly, the verb in verse 16 for drew, drew me out, only appears one other time, and it appears in the book of Exodus chapter 2, where a little baby was drawn out of the water, and his name was Moses. And God would use this baby, eventually would grow up, to draw his people out of bondage and bring them into the promised land. David feels the personal nature of that, and we can feel that today. This is the God who has drawn us out of sin and folly and rebellion, drawn us out of wrath and shame and guilt and bondage, and he's put us in a broad place, David says. 
He's given us freedom. He's given us hope. He's given us security. I was thinking about this verse this past summer. I had to have an MRI, as many of you know, due to some really terrible headaches. Fortunately, they couldn't find anything in my head and uh, said I was, I was okay, at least for now. But if you've ever been in one of those tubes, I did not realize how claustrophobic I was until I was in there. I was in there, that seemed like for hours. And uh, at, one, at one point I was sweating and, and the lady was like, are you okay? You look agitated. And I'm like, no, I'm not okay. I'm hot, I'm, I'm agitated. And, and she said, well, do your best. And that was it. That's all the help I had. Just do your best. And I finally got to come out of that tube, and I just hugged that guy, man. I was like, thank you for bringing me out of that thing. I needed a broad place. And David says, I, when I was enclosed, when my enemies were all around me, when I felt all the pressure, the Lord took me out. He brought me into a wide place. And this is what Jesus has come to do, not to enslave us, but to set us free. Well, in verses 20 and following, David then speaks about his own well, he makes some claims about himself, and then he speaks about the Lord's character and how God uh, is, is acting consistent with his nature. Verses 20 to 24 are somewhat puzzling in a sense. Let me just read them to you first. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not, acted, not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has re rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now, I say it's puzzling because if you know anything about the life of David, you read these verses and you're like, yeah, right. The cleanness of your hands. By this time in 2 Samuel 22, David has committed the sin with Bathsheba. He has murdered Uriah. Um, he has done a, a number of things. And so how can David say, you rewarded me based upon my righteousness. And this has been interpreted in various ways. I'll spare you all of the options. Some have suggested this, this, was, this could just be speaking of particular moments in David's life, like the times in which he could have killed Saul but didn't. But I think there are a few other things that we should take note of. One is, when David speaks of the rules and statutes of the Lord, there is more going on there than just laws. There's also provision for forgiveness of sin. And so this, this could be taken with David has lived a life of faith. He hasn't lived a life of sinless perfection, but he has lived a life of faith. And, and that, that goes with what Nathan says to David after the sin with Bathsheba. He says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And we know David repented of his sin, Psalm 51. This is then how David is made right. David is washed and cleansed by the mercy of God. But I think well, there's another step to this, and that is sometimes the psalm, sometimes David speaks about things that pertain to another one. The, the, the language bursts the banks sometimes. David cannot contain all that's said about him. This must speak of another one. And I think this may be one of those cases. This, is very, this language is similar to Psalm 1 that speaks about the righteous person. And we know ultimately that Psalm 1, the ultimate blessed man, is the Messiah. And so taken in this way, as we read this with Jesus in mind, the psalmist appeals to his righteousness, and we in Christ today appeal to Christ's righteousness. It's because of Jesus' righteousness, because of what Jesus has done for us, that we can experience grace. We can enjoy right standing with God because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. 
Well, then he backs that up by saying this is the way God has always acted. He says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful, or that is, with the faithful. You reward, this is not works-based salvation. This is God rewarding obedience. He rewards faithfulness. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, uh, you make yourself torturous. And then he says, God saves a humble people. This is what we've been seeing in the Gospel of Luke, isn't it? That the Lord exalts those who are humble. He looks upon that tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But those who have haughty eyes, he knows from afar, here he brings down. And then David says, in my darkness, the Lord lights my lamp. When I'm in a season in which I cannot see what's going on, in which I'm in the dark, it is God who provides light for me. For by you, he says, I can run against a troop, and by my God, I can leap over a wall. David was a a great warrior, but he knew the secret to his success came from his God. It was God who enabled him to do these things. And then he gives a beautiful description of God that Donnie read previously. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. So take refuge in him. That is, wow, that, that is... That woke everybody up. Uh, That is trust in him. All other refuges are false refuges. We should trust our God this morning because he's entirely trustworthy. His way is perfect. His word always proves true. It's a joy to trust someone who's trustworthy, isn't it? (laughs) Michael Britt, one of our deacons here, I consider him a most trustworthy guy. And if Michael Britt comes into my office and he says, hey, I need your car keys, I give that brother my car keys. I don't need to ask questions. I don't know what he's doing with it, but I trust him. And it's like that in the life of faith sometimes. We don't know where God's taking us. We don't know what God's doing, but you can give him the keys. He's entirely trustworthy. Every word of God proves true. His way, though he may not understand it, is perfect. And I take great comfort in that. Because when you're in a season where you're like, I don't know what's happening. You go back to verses like verse 30, and you go to sleep. All right, David's rejoicing, 31 to 50. i got to hasten quickly here. You guys listen fast, okay? David's rejoicing. Two, two sections here. The Lord equips the king for victory in verse 31 to 45. David rattles off a host of victories that the Lord has given him, once again exalting God as the secret to his strength and his military success. He says, for who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? This is David's way of saying, there are no other gods. Who is God but Yahweh? Nobody. You know, we read in places in the Psalms speaking about idols, that they have ears, but they cannot hear. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see, because idols are dead. They're non-existent. And here it's stated positively, who is God but Yahweh? Who is a rock except our God? And this God, he says, equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. God is the one who's equipped me. He has empowered me. He adds that God has made him agile. As he says in verse 33, made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. You see David giving glory to God. He doesn't say, I made my feet like the feet of a deer. No, God made my feet like that. He protected me. He allowed me to escape in certain situations and flee like a fast deer. In verse 34, he says, the Lord has given me some nice biceps. 
You see that? He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. That's a great verse for the gym right there. That my arms can bend a bow of bronze, which would have been a, a really difficult to pull back, but very powerful. And David says, the Lord did that. And then from these statements of strength and power, notice this really tender word that David drops in in verse 35. You have given me the shield of your salvation in your right hand supported me. And then he says, and your gentleness made me great. This Lord who is mighty and powerful, sovereign, who shakes heaven and earth to intervene is gentle toward his people. He's tender. This is the character of our Christ, is it not? David then begins to speak about some of these victories. I'll run through them. He speaks of complete victory in verse 37. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. He speaks of a humiliating victory in verse 38. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. Language that is picked up in the New Testament to speak about Christ and all of his enemies being under his feet. He speaks of a divinely enabled victory in verse 39. For you equip me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. And we, in our battle today against sin and flesh and the devil, we know that our power comes from the Lord. As Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He speaks about an awesome victory in verse 40. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. Verse 41, easy victory. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. So they had no help. It was no real battle. Verse 42, he speaks of a victory where his enemies are turned to dust. I beat them as fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like mire of the streets. And then he speaks about how far-reaching his victories have been. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. Again, we hear like these little flashes of, uh, of, a, of an everlasting international kingdom and king, which David only gives a shadow of. This international victory is mentioned in verses 44 and 5. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortress. Now at this point, we pause and we say, well, what significant is this? significance is this for us? And the first question is, why was this significant for the people? That David would win battle after battle after battle. And the answer, of course, is really simple. That as the king goes, so goes the people. You see, David's victory was their victory. And the same is true for us today in the gospel. What Christ has accomplished, we get to enjoy as well. We are in him. And we know at the end of the Bible, the end of the story is Jesus wins. And all who are in him win as well. You know, if a fellow American tells you, hey, we won the World Cup, you might look at them and say, I didn't play. Like, I barely know the rules. But in a sense, he's right. We, America, can you imagine? That, would be, that should go in the Bible if we actually win the World Cup. That'd be a miracle. We won the World Cup. You see, we are united in that way. And to say that Jesus wins means that his people win. David wins battles, they win battles. We'll see next week, Psalm 20 and 21. They're praying for the success of the king because that's where their flourishing is as well. Jesus represents his people. And Jesus has conquered our greatest enemies. And he's coming again 
to put all of them once and for all under his feet. The psalm concludes with David exalting the Lord for his faithfulness and for being faithful to his promise that one would sit on his throne forever. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and be exalted, exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gives me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You deliver me from the man of violence. Really just reiterating many of the themes that he's already stated in this psalm. And then it's interesting how this psalm ends, verse 49. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Again, this is the verse that Paul uses in Romans 15, verse 9. As he's speaking about God's plan was always to include the nations in on this gospel uh, inheritance, that the nations would receive the light of the gospel and this gospel would come through the Davidic line. The good news would come through David. And today the kingdom is advancing not through military conquests, but through proclamation. We go out into the world dressed in God's armor, proclaiming good news to the nations, that the Messiah has come and the Messiah will come again. He ends by saying, verse 50, great salvation he brings to his king. All glory be to God, he says, for his salvation. He shows steadfast love, hesed. He shows faithful love to his anointed. The promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel 7, that one would sit on David's throne forever, would eventually come in the person of Jesus Christ. As the angels would go out to those shepherds where David himself used to tend sheep and announce to them, that the Christ has come. That's the offspring that all of history had waited for. So you see, my friends, in a world of bad news, Advent preaches good news to us. Though darkness may surround us, the light has come. Our Christ has come. Our Christ has died. Our Christ has risen. And our Christ will come again. His kingdom shall have no end. Praise be to God for his promises. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you that we can come to you and find refuge and find strength. And we say with David, after looking at all of these verses, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And as we prepare our hearts to take the table, I pray that this time would be used to cultivate even deeper affections for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has come for us and the one who's coming again. Let me pray this in his good name. Amen.